Welcome. You're listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Thanks so much to Elise for piloting our last few episodes. To all her fans out there, she'll be back again soon. Today, we have a special episode for you. I was recently crawling, or should I say clicking, around our archives, and I was reminded of a fascinating fireside chat that we had a few years ago at our annual conference. Our guest is Don Verrilli, a partner with Munger, Tolles, and Olson, and the founder of its Washington, D.C. office. At the time he spoke to us, Don was serving as the Solicitor General of the United States, a position he held from June 2011 to June 2016. The Solicitor General is responsible for representing the United States government in all appellate matters before the High Court. The SG is sometimes described as the 10th Justice and actually has an office in the Supreme Court building. Before joining the government, Don spent several decades in private practice where he maintained a robust pro bono practice. You'll hear him talking about his ambitious but achievable goal of spending 10% of his time each year representing pro bono clients and how he learned to be a good lawyer by doing pro bono work. Without his pro bono experience, he doesn't think he would have become Solicitor General. In other words, pro bono wasn't a detriment to his career. Those experiences made his career. Don is interviewed by Jim Jones, the chair of the PBI Board of Directors. Two notes of context so you get some of the inside jokes. If this was billed as a fireside chat, we could really have used a fireplace. On Thursday, March 5th, 2015, when this discussion took place, we had a snowstorm in Washington, D.C. Seven to nine inches may not be a lot in some places, but it was enough to close the city down and even shut the federal government. Yes, the weather did make for an interesting conference that year. March 5th, 2015 was notable for another reason as well. Just the day before he came to speak with us, Don was arguing at the Supreme Court in defense of the Affordable Care Act, successfully as it turned out. The ACA remains very much in the news today. We are grateful to Don for joining us then and for allowing us to share his timeless insights with you now. As always, new and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you're listening on iTunes, please take a moment to leave a review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to probono at probonoinst.org. We'll be back next week with a new guest and a fresh interview. We've got a great lineup coming in the weeks ahead. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Don Verrilli. Don, thank you very much for being with us this morning. Uh, we appreciate your coming out and taking time from your busy schedule, and particularly on a uh, snowy day. Hey, so, the government's closed. So. Yeah, the government's <laughs> closed, that's right, but the solicitor generals never are never <laughs> closed, right? Um, what we wanted to do was just chat for a few minutes about pro bono and your long record of pro bono service, as Paul mentioned. 
Uh, and I, I promise that uh, the questions will be less hostile than some that you probably had to field yesterday. But uh, uh, bring it on! Right. <laughs> bring it on! You're ready, but we don't have a little red light, so so you know you can take as much time as you like. Um, you know, I, I think many people in this room know, uh, as Paul alluded to, um, that you yourself, uh, throughout your career have had a very strong commitment to pro bono. I mean, literally investing hundreds and sometimes thousands of hours in, uh, in pro bono cases. Um, and I wonder, uh, at, at the same time, you were obviously a very successful uh, uh, commercial litigator um, in a very busy and successful law firm. So uh, as, as others look at your career and say, gee, how can you manage to blend both significant pro bono service with a very successful commercial career. I wonder if you have thoughts you'd like to share with us about that. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, first of all, I guess what I would say is not that hard. Uh, really, <laughs> to get right down to it. And I had, uh, during my uh, time at Jenner and Block, I set for myself a goal that each year I would try to spend at least 10% of my hours on pro bono matters. And I think there's maybe one year I didn't do it, but I, most of every year I was there, I, I was able to do that. And I think far from being uh, a, a detriment to my ability to uh, have a successful uh, commercial corporate practice, I actually thought it made a huge positive difference in my ability to do it because it was largely through my pro bono work, especially as a younger lawyer, that I really, I think, learned a lot of the key lessons about how to be a good lawyer. And, you know, in particular, when I think back on, on some of the early death penalty cases I did, I started as soon as I was in private practice picking up these habeas cases, and they were my cases. You know, I was the lawyer on them, and so I would have to go down to uh, Columbus, Georgia, or Gulfport, Mississippi, mm -hmm. or wherever it was, and do the investigation in a not always friendly environment, and go into the local uh, county courthouses and make my arguments. And, uh, I, you know, I learned a huge amount about, uh, about judgment uh, in that process, and, you know, mm -hmm. thinking of, and, and taking responsibility and making judgments about what kinds of arguments to go with and what kinds of arguments not to go with. So I really felt like a lot of my um, ability to be a, a good lawyer was forged in that practice in a way that just wouldn't have been true, I think, as a young associate uh, uh, on the, the major matters of the firm. Hmm. Um you mentioned your work on death penalty cases. You, you certainly were well known for working on a lot of sort of hot button issues, if I, if I may call them that. Um, I wonder if you have found any of that work on those controversial issues to be any kind of, of barrier in terms of your, your public service now. Uh, you know, again, I think the opposite. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. You know, and. Um, I, I talk about this when I see young people now and speak in uh, at law schools or whatever, that I, you know, I think and back in the 1980s when I started, if you uh, said to yourself, as I did not, uh, you know, I'd like to be the Solicitor General someday or I'd like to be a judge someday, probably the last thing you would do would be then go out and seek pro bono death penalty cases because you know, they're somewhat, I suppose, controversial now. They were extremely controversial back in the 1980s and 90s. And um, yet I can, you know, sitting here say to a moral certainty that had I not done that work, uh, 
back then, had I not taken on those cases, I would not have this job right now. And that is in part because, as it turned out, in a, on five of the cases, uh, five times, I ended up in the Supreme Court arguing on behalf of somebody on death row. So a huge amount of my actual Supreme Court argument experience before getting this job came out of doing that work. But as I said, more importantly, I just, I just was a way that I learned how to become a good lawyer doing that work. So I really feel like uh, it's quite important for young lawyers to understand that it's just a bad idea to shy away from controversy in that um, you know, you, going through that process of taking on an unpopular client or an unpopular cause, in a lot of ways, that's what being a lawyer is all about. And it actually helps you understand what the nature of an attorney-client relationship is, and it makes you understand how you're supposed to fight for your client, and that obviously applies to all of your clients. So, you know, I, I, as I said, I really thought that it was a huge positive, not a negative. Yeah, interesting. I, I want to ask you, because you come out of, you come out of a firm, Jetter & Block, that um, has a long and distinguished history of pro bono service. Um, really, really enviable in many ways. And yet, if, if I look at your firm, uh, as compared to most of the other large firms represented in this room, uh, you have very little infrastructure, formal infrastructure in place to support a pro bono program. I, I don't think you have any, any full-time people who are devoted to supporting pro bono. And so I wonder, what is it about the culture or the DNA of Jenner that has produced this, these extraordinary results? So I, I haven't been there for about six and a half years now, so I, I, can't, get, <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't speak in... Well, Paul, Paul has I, been I nodding while I was saying that. <laughs> but, but, but what you just described uh, certainly accurately captures the Jenner and Block that I know uh, from mm -hmm. my 20 years there. And, you know, uh, I can't tell you how the culture came to be because it was quite well established by the time I got there in the 1980s. Uh, but I can tell you some of the markers of it. Um, and one, one marker, I think, is quite, quite important, is that the leaders of the firm, the, you know, the very top uh, leaders of the firm, took on significant pro bono work themselves and argued significant pro bono appeals and uh, encouraged their younger lawyers to do significant pro bono work. In Chicago, in the firm's main office, there was a huge amount of criminal work. And Jerry Solovey, who was a great leader of Jenner and Block and for many years the chairman of the firm, you know, he was constantly doing hundreds of hours of pro bono work every year when he was chairman of the firm and managing a you know, $20, $30 million practice, $40 million practice, whatever it was. He was also doing literally hundreds of hours of pro bono work and arguing pro bono cases himself and supervising uh, younger lawyers doing pro bono arguments in the Seventh Circuit. And so, and, you know, Tony Volucas, the same thing. And, of course, Paul has been an extraordinary stalwart in, uh, in setting that kind of example for the next generation at Jenner and Block as a leader of the firm about how important it is. And so I think that's, you know, that's a huge, that's a huge part of what made it work at Jenner and Block without much infrastructure was that you looked around and you saw that the, the people who ran the firm believed in this. And they showed they believed in it by what they did. It wasn't by, you know, talking a good game, uh, but it was, they, they showed it by what they did. And I think that made a huge difference. 
So it was really the definition of what being a good lawyer was all about became that yeah, as well. Yeah, if you as, wanted to be, yeah. you know, if you wanted to follow in the footsteps of Jerry Salvi or Tony right. Lucas or Paul Smith, you know, you were going to be doing a lot of pro bono work, including on very controversial matters. You know, they, the, the, the firm back in the 60s handled, handled the Witherspoon case, you know, the challenge to uh, death-qualified uh, uh, juries, and really quite, quite important landmark case, and the leaders of the firm, you know, Bert Jenner himself and Jerry Solomon and others, worked on that case, handled that case. So, uh, it, you know, I do think that, that that kind of setting of an example is just hugely important. Mm -hmm. So what, what was your most memorable pro bono engagement? So it's probably a case uh, uh, called uh, Wiggins. Uh, it was a death penalty case uh, coming out of Maryland. And uh, back in the early 1990s, maybe 93, 92, 93, I guess, uh, I got a, a call from a lawyer here in town um, named Russ Cannon, who did some death penalty work, saying, I've got a death penalty case in Maryland. It's just entering state habeas. Would you co-counsel with me? And I said, sure, happy to. And then about three weeks later, Russ got nominated to be a judge. And uh, so I was on my own in that case. And from there on out, and we did the state habeas uh, work in the 90s and uh, <clears throat> had a you know, like two-week trial and weren't successful, went through the state system, then went into federal habeas and actually uh, got uh, relief from the federal district court in, in Baltimore, both the sentence and the actual conviction thrown out, sentence on ineffective assistance of counsel grounds and the conviction on insufficient evidence grounds. Uh, went to the Fourth Circuit, got it reversed, uh, <clears throat> lost in the Fourth Circuit, and then uh, the Supreme Court took cert. And this was about a 10-year saga. It was a, a case ended up being argued in March of 2003, and uh, it was quite a remarkable thing. I don't know, I'm not sure exactly to this day why of all the ineffective assistance of counsel cases that the Supreme Court uh, sees in the cert stage, why they plucked this one out, but they did. And... Uh, it ended up being uh, quite a significant matter, and the court uh, ruled actually seven to two in our favor that the lawyer had received ineffective assistance of counsel, that the client had received ineffective assistance of counsel because the lawyer had not done the necessary investigating, the necessary investigatory work to make informed judgments about what the trial tactics ought to be. And it was a case in which the uh, client didn't have a criminal history apart from the crime uh, that he was accused of and had had just an unbelievably agonizing and uh, brutal childhood that it's really hard to imagine somebody could have lived through, but he did, uh, and none of, none of which had been brought out, none of which had really been discovered and brought out, much less uh, presented to the, to the court at the time of his uh, sentencing. And so that, you know, that was really quite a quite an odyssey for me to carry that case for 10 years and have it actually go from, you know, the county court in Baltimore County, Maryland, all the way to the Supreme Court and actually get a, a victory in which uh, even Chief Justice Rehnquist joined the opinion. It's well. really quite amazing. <laughs> well, you know, that that yeah. is a mark. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned um, <clears throat> previously that um, when you were in private practice, that your goal was always to, to have at least 10% of your time every year going to pro bono work. Um, I mean, some people in major law firms would say, well, great, 10% of what? So, you know, it's a, 
Yeah, it's a little there. Yeah. 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 But um, but I wonder, uh, and, and in, in a number of speeches, you, you've advocated that that ought to be the norm for all lawyers. Um, the, uh, the pro bono challenge, which um, has, has been out there for, goodness, going on almost 20 years now, uh, suggests that firms designate either 3 or 5% of their total time for pro bono. And in fact, uh, most of the firms that are challenge members uh, manage to achieve that. Some exceed it. Uh, but for a number of firms, it's a stretch. Um, and I wonder, particularly given the, uh, the current you know, market realities of the, uh, of, the, of the legal services market today, if you think that that 10% goal really is a realistic goal that firms as a whole can achieve or aspire to, and, uh, you know, what yeah. your thoughts are. Well, so right? first I would say, you know, the, I think the challenge goals are, are very important and they're worthy goals, and the firm's commitments to, to those goals and carrying out those commitments are really important and it makes a huge difference. But I guess what I would say about this, and it comes from, I think, from now being out of the law firm world for mm-hmm. six-plus years and looking at it from the outside and looking at it uh, at, at a, uh, from the perspective of what we've gone through as a country for the last six years in terms of uh, the, the economic calamity that we faced in 2008 and uh, the way we've tried to claw back from that as a country. And, you know, the way it looks to me uh, now from the outside is that we are living in a nation in which the gap between the wealthy and everybody else just keeps growing wider and wider and, uh, and you know, income inequality and wealth inequality be- is becoming a more and more serious problem. And it, and it's, all, it's true in the economy generally, it's true in the country generally, it's also true in the legal profession. You know? And I just think that's a reality that all of us in this profession should face up to, that you know, there are these very real market pressures, I get that, but it's, you know, it's not just that the poor uh, can't afford basic legal services mm-hmm. anymore, it's that the middle class can't afford basic legal services anymore. And um, although you know, law firms have gone through uh, some tough economic times over the last six years, I realize that. Uh, you know, again, now that I'm out of the world and I have a little perspective on it, you know, actually, law firms are doing unbelievably well. And partners in law firms and the major law firms in this country make a huge amount of money. And so I guess my sense of it is that um, it, uh, because this has always been a public profession and we've always defined ourselves as having a public mission as lawyers, uh, that uh, given the, the state of our economic uh, situation now uh, and given the fact that law firms really are doing very well and there is a crying need for the middle class as well as the poor, that whether, you know, maybe 10% is an unrealistic goal, I don't know, um, but I do think it's something that we should aspire to. Uh, and, you know, as I said, for myself, I did it like every year, and it wasn't all that hard, really. And, um, and it was incredibly enriching at the same time for me in terms of my experience. And um, so I guess in terms of a norm, I think it, I think, 
this is a profession ought to give some thought to whether you know, this is a norm that can express our commitment to the public. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's one in which I do think, you know, with a little perspective, you realize actually, you know, yeah, law firms can't afford this economically because law firms, you know, people who work in law firms do exceedingly well economically as compared to everybody else uh, mm-hmm. in the country. And so, anyway, that's, that's just me talking, right? That's yeah. me personally. It's not a government view of any kind. <laughs> It's just my, my own personal sense of things, and it does come Although out I'm sure the government is in own. favor of access to justice. And, and, and uh, very much so, but, but I'm not speaking really government. This is just my own right. personal take on, you know, thinking about pro bono, you know, both based on my own experience and now, as I said, having some little more of an outside perspective on the situation than yeah. I did. But. Having, having said all that, personally, would you, uh, what, what would you think of mandatory pro bono? So, you know, I've never given that any thought, Jim, actually. I've never yeah. given that any thought. Um, but I guess what I, you know, my sense of that, watching the, the place like Jenner and Block work as successfully as it did to just have a culture in which it was, you know, was part of what it meant to be a lawyer at this mm-hmm. firm was to do this. But that's where we want to get to, you know, that this is part of what it means to be a lawyer, to do this, period. You know, that's what, that's what lawyers do. You know, they serve their clients, and part of serving their clients is taking on clients who need pro bono assistance, and that's right. just what you do. You know, that's, I think, that to me seems like the goal. Right. I, you know, you, you make a very important point, and, and uh, I think a lot of people have observed that, um, notwithstanding the fact that over the last couple of decades particularly, um, you know, law firms, like all the law firms in this room, have, have devoted huge resources to pro bono. I, I think... Last year, uh, you know, the pro bono signature firms had something like 4.3 million hours of pro bono time. I mean, that's a lot. Um, and yet, um, if you look at the overall situation of access to justice in our country, we haven't moved the needle very much. You know, I mean, it would be a lot worse off if we hadn't done the 4.3 million hours. I mean, I don't mean that. But we, in terms of the overall society, we haven't moved the needle that much. And so... I wonder uh, if you have, uh, apart from the, you know, the sort of the 10% commitment, if there are other things that you think that prominent lawyers, lawyers in prominent law firms, could or should be doing to, to more effectively address this problem of access to justice? Because I think you put your finger on it. I mean, it's, it's not just access to justice for the poor. It's access to justice for the middle class. Uh, I mean, we have, a, we have a justice system that's increasingly so expensive that people just can't afford it. Yeah, so in addition to the, the volunteering of pro bono time, which, as you said, I mean, it has moved the needle some. It's, it's hugely important. And imagine what the world would be like if you didn't have those four right, points right. a million hours. You know, I do think, and this is, I'm not an expert on this, and there's some great people <coughs> working in the Justice Department and in the White House and, uh, and in... Uh, think tanks and organizations around the country trying to think these things through. And they've got ideas that are very well developed and, and uh, that they're aggressively pursuing. But I just think at the, at the 30,000 foot level, I think we need to recognize that this is, it's going to take a, a very, very significant commitment of resources. And those resources are going to have to be both public resources and private resources. And they're going to have to, it's going to have to be federal resources and state and local resources. And so I guess, you know, in addition to trying to set the standard uh, uh, themselves, uh, put, let raise, uh, you know, set the bar high within law firms that 
it's important for leaders of the profession to continue as they, as they do now, but to continue uh, in a very aggress aggressive pursuit at both the state and local and national level of commitment to the funding necessary for access to justice because you know, it, that, that, there is a crying, crying need there just to meet the basic, the basic legal needs of middle-class Americans. Uh, there's a crying need there, uh, as well as not to mention the poor uh, who keep getting left further behind. Um, and so I do think, in addition to pro bono, that kind of recognition that this is an important public policy objective that we ought to be devoting ourselves to. Great. Don, thank you very oh, much. It was my pleasure. We really appreciate my your pleasure. being with us. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff.